and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is And we are recording for Dolomite Is My Name, a Netflix original, as they call them. Sadly, yes. Why must you fight progress, Alex? It does look like it premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival, so at least some people got to see it on the big screen. In but this case... Before the in, movie started, there was like the login screen for netflix <laughs> yeah and they just sniped people that were using uh shared credentials <laughs> i will tell you why i fight progress in this particular regard but that comes in the second half <laughs> hello and welcome back to the contrarians where we're right and you're wrong my name is alex joined as always by my co-host and friend julio julio the patron takeover continues as you mentioned we're here to discuss Dolomite is my name. Uh, return to form for Eddie Murphy or just another uh, in a long line of embarrassing attempts? We'll, <laughs> we'll find out here shortly. We'll discuss which patron threw this on our desk and, you know, we had to say how high because they told us to jump. But before that, let's go ahead and explain who we are and what we do, Julio. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That is our battle cry. We will find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times accompanied by that wonderful IP and trademarked logo that reads Certified Fresh. And what we'll do is we will cut that movie down to size and explain maybe why that high and mighty rating isn't exactly uh, justified or warranted even, uh, be it some bad supporting acting, uh, questionable storytelling choices, cinematography, uh, direction, bad soundtrack, poor score, whatever we need to do to find the cracks and the weaknesses and what we're discussing, we will work tirelessly to do so. Uh, being that Dolomite is my name is 97%, uh, that's about as high as it goes. So. 97. It's higher than T2. My God. <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> So as you would imagine, Dolomite is my name is getting taken down a few pegs here in this first half. Uh, and on alternating episodes, what we'll do is we'll pay attention to the other end of the spectrum. We'll find movies on Rotten Tomatoes that are lowly rated. We shoot for about 30% and below, one of those nasty green splotches that they call rotten. And as you can imagine, we will build that movie up. We will talk about its positive merits. Some of the aspects critics just either refuse to acknowledge or maybe just didn't get overall. We'll make a case, and a lot of times a convincing one. Uh, we have this idea, this gimmick, this act our, for our podcast here, uh, founded for mainly two reasons. Number one, art is subjective. You can be as over the moon about something or as downright cynical about something. 
as you choose to be if you truly set your mind to it. And number two, the Rotten Tomatoes system doesn't necessarily always tell the whole story about a movie. And sometimes it's hard to put just a percentage, a number out of 100 on a movie and feel as though that adequately uh, would reflect to some the merit or contents of the film. That all comprises part one, as exhausting as that may sound. That's just that's the first half right there, baby. That's uh, part one. <laughs> first half of every episode, what we refer to as Contrarian's Corner. Julio, we make sure to discuss how we really feel about the movies we're discussing. And if people tuning in in regards to Dolomite is my name, want to know how you and I both really feel about this movie. They just need to stick around for part two, the second half. That's correct. Part two, aptly titled Real Talk. That's where we tell you how we experience the movie, regardless of the Rotten Tomatoes score. We don't worry about the gimmick anymore. We're just being truthful about how we feel. Uh, and not just us. Uh, on these uh, patron picks, patron demands, we try to get the opinions of the people that that tasked us with watching these movies and analyzing them. So if you stick around for real talk, you're also going to find out how the person that ordered us to watch Dolomite is my name and give it the contrarian treatment, how do they feel about the movie? Uh, and uh, this is a good time to mention them. Alex, this comes from... I guess, unsurprisingly, <laughs> this comes from patron Dan Brennick, uh, who has his very own podcast that's all about Netflix. So, of course, he usually tries to give us Netflix originals to to cover on the show. Uh, what, what was that, Extinction? Extinction is the, the Michael Pena, Lizzie Kaplan vehicle. Mm-hmm. Sci-fi dystopia. And then, of course, the, one of the toughest episodes we've ever recorded, Beasts of No Nation. <laughs> Oh, Lord, that's right. We've gone all over the place with Dan. And uh, I, I would like to think that we've always uh, risen to the challenge. Mm-hmm. So uh, here we go again. This is uh, <laughs> Eddie Murphy's return to the contrarians. I mean, he comes up in conversation naturally every now and then just because he's fucking Eddie Murphy. But yeah, it's been a while since we've uh, a vehicle that we were riding passenger for had been driven by Eddie Murphy 97%. And this was heralded and proclaimed to be his return to form. Sadly, on Again. October 4th, <laughs> yeah, on October 4th. And then when it was released streaming October 25th of 2019, few could foresee what was going to happen to the world in the next six months. And Eddie's just been kind of doing his own thing since just going uh, house to house, putting his movie on the, on the Netflix Q. Yeah, the, yeah, save for later. Yeah. You watch you watch Dolomite yet, motherfucker? Uh, <laughs> but we'll we'll circle back to Eddie and what's up with him in part two. We're here to focus on the movie right now. And the movie, Dolomite is my name. Again, a towering 97% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Julio, what were uh, critics saying about it? What have you been able to find? All right. Lots of fresh tomatoes, just like, like they say in the movie. Dolomite four-walled the Run Tomatoes website, and it's all, all those walls are made of fresh tomatoes. I'm going to start with Julian Little from idobe.com, who says, Dolomite, that's my name, is a great return to comedic form for Eddie Murphy and a love letter to a 70s classic. That's your favorite term when it comes to criticism, Alex. It's oh, a yeah. love letter. Good. At least I didn't say a love letter to Hollywood. <laughs> the 70s Hollywood? No, not quite. 70s classic. Let's just... I mean, get it out of the way now. Alex, were you familiar at all with the the Dolomite mythology? Uh, Yes, I I am familiar with the Dolomite lore and uh, 
Rudy Ray Moore, but not to an extent that, you know, much of this movie wasn't new for me. You know, the, the, I learned as much about the, the process of making this movie as, you know, anyone who had zero knowledge uh, watching this. But Dolomite, you know, just from how much you and I will just read, you know, random reviews or articles about movies, it, it exists as like a a phrase and it immediately conjures up like a not quite a grindhouse, but, you know, a, a midnight showing type of movie uh, without even having seen it. You know, it's like how some people have never seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre can imagine kind of what it is just by the way people compare it or, you know, use it in name. Uh, there's also Dolomite uh, from Futurama. <laughs> it's a heat resistant mineral capable of surviving in lava. Uh, Dolomite is a real mineral composed of calcium magnesium carbonate. Professor Farnsworth enthusiasm for it. And he says the tough black mineral that won't cop out when there's real heat all about it's Dolomite baby is a reference to the 1975 black exploitation film Dolomite's title character. So as with most things, I can find some sort of reference to should I enjoy. So that's my extent of knowledge of it. Uh, I'm very you know more about Dolomite than about Dolomite. <laughs> Well, that's the joke. Don't you get the joke, Julio? It's Dolomite, but you know he thinks it's Dolomite. You know? I, I just felt that we're we're getting really close to Rick and Morty territory there. So I, I'm glad the bit is over. Well, Futurama's a good show. So. <laughs> All right, let's move on to Catherine Springer from Awards Watch, who says, "Has Murphy reinvented himself again?" No, it's more like he has finally found a way to combine all his previous chapters into one epic book. Don't call it a comeback, call it a climax. Is this Eddie Murphy climaxing, Alex? God, uh, <laughs> put your weight on it, as he says. <laughs> you know, I, th I think there a lot of that conversation we could start right now is going to bleed over into real talk too much. So I think that's a that's an interesting one to circle back to when we get there. All right. All right. Uh, here's one that we can handle right away. Thelma Adams from AARP Movies for Grownups says, this movie is as American as shrimp and grits. Is this, is this American, Alex? Because I didn't see any, any red hats. That's a very strange review. <laughs> it's the story of the American dream and of celebrity and success. So in that aspect, I suppose so. Yeah, but it's like... This happens everywhere, right? I, 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 I kind of as I've gotten older, I've, I guess I appreciate. I, I'm kind of in awe of how well America positioned itself as the land where dreams come true, as if that didn't happen anywhere else in the world. <laughs> I'm sure every country has its dolomites, and well, yes, I think that's been proven. But also, there it, it was not. These fuckers didn't have Letterbox and IMDb, Julio. They didn't know that like those opportunities <laughs> existed elsewhere. <laughs> they lived in a a supposed land of freedom and opportunity that, you know, shoot for the stars and you can be Clark Gable or, you know, whoever the uh, Walter Matthau. Billy and, D. Uh, Billy D. Yeah. Or who else was in front page? Um, Susan Sarandon, Susan whoever Sarandon. it may be. Yeah. <laughs> you, what you're saying is not wrong, but you have to also realize that that information wasn't as accessible in well, 1975 I, I understand that they didn't have that information but Thelma Adams writing for AARP movies for grown-ups she has that information she knows there's a, a big world out there where where people are making their dreams come true everywhere not just in America and yet she has yes, the nerve to go this is America I, 
I think there's also some merit to being curious if a movie as insane as Dolomite <laughs> could be made anywhere but America. You speak as someone who hasn't watched stuff like Singham. We know better by now, Alex. I, th- I think you're still missing some crucial uh, <laughs> ideologies and elements to what we're discussing. All right. I guess we will not be done with this point as, as, as easily as I thought. We'll circle back to it. Um, okay, we're going to close with Rohan Nahar from the Hindustan Times, who says, Had Rudy Ray Moore been depressed, mentally ill, and white, he might have turned into the Joker. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's there. It's it's on the Run Tomatoes page. This dude... He wrote this and he said, yes, please put this quote as representative of what my review, my fresh positive review has to say about uh, Dolomite is my name. He went ahead and compared Rudy Ray Moore to maybe the Joker. The nerve. Is what we can't have nice things, Alex. You want to talk about a good movie versus a bad movie. (laughs) Jesus. All All right. Well, those were the quotes. Take us into Contrarian's Corner, Alex. Way down in the jungle deep, the lion stepped on the signified monkey's feet. The monkey said, motherfucker, can't you see? You standing on my goddamn feet. All right. So the story of Dolomite is my name, as we just mentioned, name dropped a second ago. It follows struggling artist Rudy Ray Moore, who works in a record store in 1970s L.A., trying to get on the air in the in-store radio station. He moonlights as an MC for his friend Ben Taylor and his band at a club, asking the club owner for a comedy time slot he has turned down. One day, homeless man Rico wanders into the record store making loud, rhythmic proclamations, one of which includes the name Dolomite. The real Rudy Ray Moore recorded a number of prominent street poets, including Big Brown. Talk about that a little bit more in the second half. But the idea, yeah, Eddie Murphy. He's a guy who wants fame and all that comes along with it. Uh, And he works in a record store and he tries to convince the DJ at the store, who's played by the incomparable Snoop Dogg, of what music he should be playing. He's recommending all this shit over Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye, arguably (laughs) arguably the greatest R&B song of all time. If you can't have Jackie Moon singing Love Me Sexy, I guess Marvin Gaye is a good replacement. (laughs) I, I suppose so. Uh, Eddie looks old, man. That was the first thing that really took me out in the the beginning. Is uh, Eddie's? You're so used to him, so well manicured and his haircuts, you know, being really, really, you know, tight and just on the fucking money. And he's a good looking cat too. Uh, so to see him kind of withered and old in this was a bit uh, unnerving. Reality check. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> you're like, if he looks like that. What do I look like? Now, I believe you saw this movie when it was originally released and then rewatched it for this recording. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So help me out here. The first time you watched it, did you have any feelings similar to mine that you were hoping that like Snoop Dogg was possibly going to be the narrator, at least the conscience of the movie? <laughs> no. <laughs> I I knew that or at least in my limited experience Snoop Dogg doesn't stick around whenever he shows up in a movie I know I guess it's like what like Soul Plane that's more of a Snoop Dogg vehicle am I right at least that would look like 
I, I suppose so, He was yeah. like front and center on the standee. But usually when I see Snoop Dogg pop up in a movie, it's like you get him for one scene, two scenes, tops, which is what happens in this one. So, no, I didn't think he was going to be around for, for, for long. I thought he was a, a one-time joke. I'm like, sure. There he is. He's Snoop Dogg. He's playing Snoop Dogg. He tries to tell Rudy Ray Moore, Eddie Murphy, what life is like. He tells him, <laughs> the window has closed. You and I, this is our station in life. And uh, it is sensible advice, a, a sensible sentiment. And yet the movie goes against it for the next two hours. The movie's just five minutes long. He's like, you know what? You're right. All right. <laughs> Let me go back. Let me get back to the register. My time is up. Standard opening credits. Uh, you know, he's just walking about town and we're getting to see what his life is all about a pretty standard affair i mean i think we can go ahead and call that out julio uh when this movie starts if you've ever seen a movie before you know what's going to happen he's going to have some success and then he's going to come back down to earth and have some strife and struggles that he has to fight through and then in the end you know he's going to get the big one that really takes off and he succeeds in a way that no one could have ever foreseen and he surprises everybody and the movie ends with him like you know in front of a crowd or giving like a big motivational speech or something like that um it's walk hard maybe 30 seconds into the movie you can deduce all that Yes. Uh, what you can't deduce is that really whatever he goes up against is not that impressive. It's, it's not that that difficult to overcome. You know, there's nothing that happens in, in Rudy Ray Moore's journey in this movie where he actually has to sacrifice anything, which was my my takeaway way back in 2019 before the world went to hell. <laughs> and now in in 2023 it's even more noticeable i guess because we've you know we've gone through so many extremes of the human condition and here he is here's eddie murphy he feels like he wants to uh become a a, a comedy superstar and mm. he does it and then he feels like he wants to be a movie star and he does it you know there's like a couple minor setbacks he needs to steal electricity he needs to borrow some money, but it, it always works out in the end. And that part, especially considering this is based on a true story, like that's the, what what gives me pause. Like I, I think that it's uh, not just unrealistic, but almost a little bit insulting for all those people that are actually trying to achieve those dreams and have to face the reality of like, oh, no, it doesn't really work out that well just because you want it to, to work out. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I feel like there's been plenty of movies we've talked about this of just I mean there is a formula it, it, that it and I think that we've called them out every time. I, I, I think that uh I would think of a that thing you do, right? Like that thing you do, mm-hmm. you can make that argument that oh, you know, they they wanna they wanna be big music stars, and they are for the duration of the movie and then they they break up. At least that movie has the decency of showing that they can't handle the the success. Yeah. And, and there's uh, there's some heartbreak, right? Jimmy and Faye, they are together and they're not together. Ethan Embry joins the Marines. So there there is some loss there, at least. Uh, here in Dolomite, nobody loses anything. <laughs> Eddie Murphy wins, like, scene after scene. He just comes up with another way to, to stay on top. And that's just... It's not that interesting. And it's also, after a while, it just feels a little... Toxic in the way that you're representing reality. Because how many people, I mean, are struggling to 
to make movies to to get stuff done and it's not as easy as uh, it is for Rudy Ray Moore in this movie. That Joker quote was absolutely absurd, but I did have it in my notes here that like it's just going to be inescapable now that anytime someone tells like a joke in a poorly lit club to like no response, people are going to be like, oh, it's like the Joker. Uh, <laughs> this is that's why this is very American. Uh, the difference between Arthur Fleck, though, and um, Rudy is it's kind of just a bitter never was at this point, uh, but he doesn't. I guess he doesn't see that, you know, the a flick of a wrist can change your life. And as I mentioned before, when the vagrant comes in spouting tales and cutting Ric Flair promos, he's like, man, there could be money to this. Uh, Julio, he just steals this material from these people and turns it into his own. He Carlos Mencia's this thing. <laughs> he does. He does. It's a uh, is it cultural appropriation if it's your own culture? What do you call it then? Just theft, right? <laughs> it's just pure theft. Yeah, it's there's no appropriation. <laughs> it's just theft. Yeah, he creates this. He just he becomes a pro wrestler. He creates his personality, and I mean that's I mentioned Ric Flair because there's a lot of people that just tried to be Ric Flair. You know their interviews and their mannerisms and their style, and similar to that back in a time when the internet and visibility wasn't as pervasive, you could get away with that, but. They just go, my name is Ric Flair. <laughs> Wrestling uh, motherfuckers is my game. Woo. <laughs> and But here, Rudy Ray Moore just steals all this shit and, you know, just goes up on stage and here it is. This is me, baby. Pay me. All right. So, so, so level with me, Alex. We get to this point in the movie. He, he gets on stage and he kills with these rhymes and these just really vulgar uh Anecdotes. Jokes, I guess. Yeah, I don't even know. Like, you know, because there's not, it's not even like there's like the, the structure of a joke. It's not like there's a setup and a punchline. It's more like, like poetry, but really filthy poetry. <laughs> and people are just rolling in the aisles, slapping their knees. Uh, there's a safe space, Alex. Uh, how white did you feel during this sequence and just moving forward? The line said, I ain't heard a word you say. If you say three more, I'll jump off on your motherfucking head. <laughs> oh, I felt super white, but the, the reason for that really had nothing to do with like the jokes or the atmosphere. It was just like, it's 1975 and these folks are all dressed significantly better than I ever have or ever will in my life. And I was just like, God damn, like, my, my white sensibilities of style still have nothing on... Even though Rudy Ray Moore is like this uh, character... Who is like you know a um, over embellishment of style and you know the, what was like hot at the time? He still looks much cooler than I ever will, even with the fake fucking afro on. He's wearing a toupee <laughs> for crying out loud! <laughs> and this is before he even starts dancing, right? Right. This is this suddenly makes you awash with shame as you recall what it's like when you go to a comedy club and you watch these fucking improv people <laughs> trying to be funny. Nothing makes me feel whiter than going to a fucking bad improv show. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> uh, did you uh, did you geek out when you uh, when you saw Titus? As Titus is great. <laughs> Titus is great. Uh, Titus Andromedon of Kimmy Schmidt fame, and also um, Defuan from Thirty Rock. He's uh, 
fuck, I always forget Tracy's wife's name, but he's like her stylist. He's great. Really good follow on uh, Instagram also. But of course, you know, he's one of the funniest parts of this movie. So he's basically just relegated to like background facial expressions. Yeah, it's it's weird that you get because by now, I mean, he was he already gone through Kimmy Schmidt and Mm -hmm. they knew what he was capable of. And then they cast him as a very quiet, reserved character uh, compared to the others, right? Uh, You have this emerging superstar and you put him in the back burner just so that uh, half-bins like Craig Robinson can have some screen time. (laughs) So we can get centerpiece Eddie Murphy as though there haven't been nine million movies that have done that before. (laughs) He does, he sings a little bit in this, but I always pine for more Eddie Murphy. He sings, is it? Teddy P, close the door and the first Nutty Professor. That's so great. Sadly, we don't get anything like that here. Um, he records some material because he just is, you know, people are really taking to it. And he releases it independently because it is, again, the early 70s. This, his movie comes out in 1975, but we're kind of traversing through the early 70s here. And the, you know, the Tipper Gore hadn't made a big fucking stink about metal yet. So there wasn't like parental advisory labels or warnings that came on CDs that could still be sold in stores or records for that matter. So most of the people are just like, we're not going to sell this. So he's like, I'm going to release it independently and sell it at my store. And he becomes a sensation so much so that a record label wants to, you know, get in the uh, Dolomite business, the Rudy Ray Moore business. He sets off on this tour through uh, the South predominantly and starts adding on to his act. As uh, one of the clubs, he comes across Lady Reed. He's in Mississippi. And I guess this is a meet cute. He overhears a ruckus in the, the uh, commotion in the audience and watches uh, Lady Reed's man, boyfriend, husband, whomever, uh, slap her. And then she just winds back and fucking drops him with a punch. It's actually a pretty cool moment because it's like, fuck yeah, K- kick his ass. Uh, <laughs> uh- this is the the most frustrating part of the movie is that this this does read like a meat cute and they have a few scenes throughout the movie where you think that maybe we are heading towards some sort of love story here, some sort of relationship, and it never happens. We we go the entire movie and they're just what, friends, colleagues? It's like the people making this movie hadn't seen movies before <laughs> and they, they just didn't understand the formula. You cannot introduce uh, strong, assertive, independent woman, and then have her not end up taming Dolomite in a way, right? Because that's what you you feel like. That's where this is headed. He, they're so different that yeah, we're gonna have them meet each other, and then they're gonna inspire each other to be better, and then at the end they're gonna be a couple because that's just how it should work. Uh, it's just so weird that a movie about making movies, a movie, yeah. <laughs> About what works in movies. Yeah, doesn't really deliver on this most basic element of uh, of storytelling, of, of crowd-pleasing. Were you bummed that they didn't end up together? Of course I was, dude. I'm the hopeless romantic of the two of us, and I always love a good romance in a movie. So, of course, I was like, come on, give me more of it. Why are they afraid to... to- Show some love. Like, why are they afraid to take a relationship between a man and a woman seriously? You know, it's like the only the only time that they address that here in the movie is just for cheap jokes. And I guess I'm just preconditioned from seminal white films like Walk the Line that when it immediately launches into like a montage of them singing together and shit, I'm like, oh, they're they're going to get married by the end of the movie. Right. 
Yeah. <laughs> Halfway through the movie, she's going to go like, I'm pregnant. <laughs> and he's going to have to choose between financing his movie or feeding his his child. Yes. And she has a husband that she has to leave and he has a wife that he has to leave because they belong together and they're going to get married at the premiere of the movie in the end. That's what's going to happen. But sadly, none of that is to be. Do get a montage, get a cute moment with Snoop. Snoop comes back in and Rudy tell, comes in and tells him to play his shit. He just says something really like uh, ambiguous like that. And so he ends up playing the song that he had asked him to play at the beginning of the movie. It's just kind of a cute throwback. And he gets frustrated about it. And he's like, well, he's like, that is some good shit. And, you know, that's <laughs> it's one of the most uh, innocent, fun moments of the whole movie. Did they caught uh, Snoop as he was leaving the, the studio, the lot? No, like, wait, wait, wait one, one more thing, one more thing, one more thing. <laughs> yeah. He, he was like stealing the wardrobe they gave him. He was just going to get in his car and take <laughs> off. Like, hold on, hold on. We'll let you keep that. Just you got to come sit down and record this real quick. It'll take 10 minutes. So after the tour, he and the boys want to go out and celebrate uh, Titus, Mike Epps, and Craig Robinson. And so they go see the front page. You ever seen the front page, Julio? No. It looks pretty bad. <laughs> we see five minutes of it. Jack Lemon, Walter Matthau, Susan Sarandon. Uh, Charles Durning is in it as well. Celebrated, famed <laughs> actor Charles Durning. Of, the Muppets, um, Charles Durning. Yes, but also Home for the Holidays and yes. Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. I'm sure those are the things he would want to be listed first <laughs> in the things that he's done. Anyway, so what happens is they go to see this as they're told it's this funny movie and they're not laughing at all. And uh, Mike Epps remarks that, you know, there's no brothers in this and this shit ain't funny. And overhearing this, you know, we can see the gears turning in Rudy's head as Eddie Murphy kind of has his, wait a minute, I can make a movie, you know, for us type thing. And they come out of the movie and the, the only quote I wrote down was his criticism of the front page was there were no titties, no funny and no Kung Fu. And man, that's that that is like a. That is a battle cry right there. We rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That's our battle cry. That's my, I'll get that tattooed on me, man. No titties, no funny, no kung fu. That's what's wrong with America today. That's basically uh, the formula for a Tarantino release. Uh, well, I would replace titties with feet, and that, that would. <laughs> you can have both. Or uh, no director doing a poor Australian accent for absolutely no reason. <laughs> uh, so I felt like this was a cheap joke. Uh, I mean, I guess maybe maybe I'm just not as because I'm not familiar with the front page. Then I I missed the I didn't feel the impact of these men kind of diminishing its its importance. Right, I I know I have Casablanca in my head because we just talked about Casablanca in the previous uh, episode. But I don't know what's the the comedy equivalent of Casablanca. You know, like a very wide movie, but it's supposed to be funny. And then I get it; they see it, and they're like, "Oh, this is not funny. Let's make it funny with black people." The front page doesn't. It, it, I don't feel that it's that iconic. <laughs> so uh, I wish they'd go with something else. You know, like I don't know what's period appropriate. That's the thing, because you know, I want to say like it would be it would be very funny. If they saw something like, uh, I don't know, Modern Times or uh, City Lights or some uh, Buster Keaton movie. And they're like, oh, yeah, this- I was going <laughs> to say Buster Keaton or um, Chaplin. We're going to be what I started referencing. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, this is not funny. And then 
And then you can feel the dissonance, right? Like, cause they're like, of course it's funny. Like these guys are classics. And, and, and so there's, there's a lot more contrast. It makes it a lot more interesting, but if you can, you gotta take shots at the front page. I mean, I don't know that anybody cares. Like how many people watching Dolomites by name uh, are familiar with the front page? I mean, I feel like that's just for Walter Matthau enthusiasts. Uh, I don't know. Listeners, if I if I'm off base and there's actually this huge following for the front page, let us know. But I I feel like they they went for uh, they they didn't go for the right movie in in this sequence. I'm trying to think of movies from oh, it should have been Monty Python. They watched that. <laughs> They're like, what the go. fuck is this? <laughs> Monty Python. God, Alex, you're a genius because that is the ultimate. Why dude will quote this movie? <laughs> Or, uh, oh man, you know what would be great is if they went to see Paper Moon. They're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> if I get up in that light with my own movie, I could be everywhere. I could be everywhere all at once. So he vows to make a movie, specifically one with titties, funny, and kung fu. He enlists the services of a writer, Jerry Jones. A red flag appears on my screen. What's that? Keegan-Michael Key? Yep. With a handlebar mustache? What's the problem? The the second red flag. (laughs) The first one is just his presence. And then when you see that he has the mustache and the fro, and you're like, oh, God, he's got to be a character. And he is. How would you describe uh, Keegan-Michael Key in this movie, Alex? He's definitely, you know, the auteur. He's an artist, and he's above what's going on here. But, you know, Rudy Ray Moore is going to pay him, and also he'll get a writing credit on a movie, so he kind of wants to use it and be as artistic in it that as he can be. Uh, but he's definitely kind of above it all, you know, and he's kind of always tightening his tie and uh, using his handkerchief to wipe off his monocle. <laughs> On the same plane, but for different reasons as who shows up next in this star-studded affairs, Wesley Snipes plays Derville Martin of, as they mentioned, Rosemary's Baby fame. Uh, I was also in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner... Uh, time to sing. So see, wait, he's playing a real person? Black Caesar. Yeah, Derville Martin was a, an actor that um, died really young. But yeah, I mean, I, I know him from Rosemary's Baby, most of all. So they approach him as they know he, he's like an actor of repute and ask him to you know join the movie. And he tells them basically to fuck off. But then they ask, you know, what if we let you direct? And he sees potential dollar signs in this. Wesley Snipes, man, for some reason, I find it a knock on this movie that he decided to show up after just, you know, time away doing his own shit and have like this really riveting performance in this <laughs> just kind of consequence of nothing. Like, what, what the fuck, man? That's funny. I, I think that the way that we read this performance was massively influenced by the fact that you knew that he was playing a real person and I didn't. So, oh. Uh, Oh, yeah. If you didn't know that, you'd probably be like, what the hell is he doing? Yep. I'm like, why is he doing this? Like, why is he going so big and so weird? And and now I'm like, okay, I guess he's just, that's the way that guy was. And so that's why he's playing him that way. But if you don't know that, uh, my note literally says, what the fuck happened to Wesley Snipes? <laughs> because <laughs> this isn't Blade. I mean, he's, I know he can be wacky, but never to this level. So I... I just felt like he was not, he, he was a little off compared to the rest of the cast. 
but no, I appreciate it now. Okay, so he's doing his thing because that's the way that the guy was in real life. And uh, well, I, I think it's the movie's failure that they didn't make it even clearer. You wanted like some historical footage or like kind of like at the end where they show the actual Dolomite movie. You wanted some of that with this guy. So you'd be like, oh, okay. I understand the context now. Well, yeah. Even like at, at the end when they're saying Dolomite went on to make like seven more movies. Well, like, okay. Give me a little title card for uh, for Wesley Snipes. <laughs> Why not? Wesley Snipes went on to direct, I don't know, Rosemary's Baby 2. Direct to video. The, the Awakening. Uh, prior to this, Wesley Snipes' most recent time at bat was for a film called armed response which was discussed in our wb studios retrospective <laughs> as he starred in the john stockwell directed film that uh, also had Anne hache and seth rollins in it <laughs> I, I don't know how much money it would require for me to sit down and watch this i say that now and a patron out there is licking their chops but <laughs> do you think that the set of that movie was similar to the set of uh Dolomite, as depicted in Dolomite, is my name. I imagine there's a lot more green screen action in that, <laughs> if if one had to guess. But yeah, Snipes has obviously been consistently working for decades, pretty much since the late 80s. But this was definitely like, oh my God, where's this dude been? And why is he using it in this movie? <laughs> why isn't he playing Ray Raymore? <laughs> Exactly. That's uh, if there's a comeback we need. I mean, Eddie's got money, man. <laughs> Wesley's got a. <laughs> he's got a lot got of back clean. taxes to pay off, man. <laughs> uh, we get a fun montage of low budget filmmaking, as if you know, we don't really know what that looks like. And furthermore, we employ a bunch of white film <laughs> students on the crew. The leader, who's the turns out to be the DP. Just looks, you know, for the time period, he's probably, if you talk to him for 30 seconds, he would tell you how much the Wizard of Oz sucks. He would, you know, <laughs> that Citizen Kane wasn't that good. I'm trying to think of what his favorite movie at the time would be. Uh, he would quote Monty Python all the time on set. <laughs> uh, Cody Smith McPhee. Do you know him from anything else? No. What's he from? Uh, I don't know, but he's like the artsy version of Ezra Miller, which... The way things are going, it might be the only version of Ezra Miller that's left when all is said and done. Uh, but he was in uh, Power of the Dog, that uh, award-winning movie from last year, year before last. Uh, he might have even been nominated for it. But if not, he uh, he definitely was in it. And he played uh, Kirsten Dunn's son. He was pretty good there. Here, he's just playing a white dude. Interesting. Yeah. Did you feel it was it was kind of tricky, problematic? that the white kids came to kind of like save this production. I don't know if it's that as much as just like, of course they're the ones that are like, Oh, we haven't been paid. You know, when are you going to pay us? <laughs> it's like the fucking nerve of it all. <laughs> so they end up gussying up the Dunbar hotel into a makeshift soundstage. It uh, was abandoned, but uh, Rudy worked out a deal with the landlord or the owner of the property that they'll chase off all the drug addicts that have been just, you know, congregating around there if they can use it. Uh, for the time being, they ended up stealing electricity and just total like guerrilla style filmmaking, which you got to respect to a certain point. Uh, but as production begins, we learn that Rudy doesn't really have the the chops for acting here, nor for choreographed fight scenes. And um, Derville Martin is growing more and more impatient with it by the day. And 
gets to a point where Wesley Snipes, that is, you know, playing the role, we see that Derville just wants to get this over with and get out. So Julio, lo and behold, a guy who's never made a movie before, knows nothing about making movies or the process of it's never acted before, you know, can't really do any of those things. And that is one of the most annoying things in the world about not just movies, but any type of art where someone's just like, well, I can do that. And they have no idea of what goes into it. So I think this was supposed to be funny, but it really just to me came across as like, well, fucking two plus two is four. This is what was always going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I'm not amused by people failing upwards. And that's literally what this entire movie is. It just feels reductive of the the art and the craft of filmmaking. Right. Like I, I understand the sentiment behind um, I don't see myself on screen. So I'm going to fix that by making a movie that puts me on the screen. But I think that it would have been a lot less insulting if it had been about him recognizing that, you know what, I don't, I'm not a good actor. I'm not a kung fu fighter. I'm not any of these things that I want to put on screen. So let me hire people that actually know how to do those things and I'll put them on screen. You know, but the, the thing is, the movie never really addresses the fact that it's it's all an ego trip, right? Like he wants to be the guy that's on the screen. He wants to be. It, the, they kind of turn it into this crusade for representation, and he's doing it for black people everywhere. But really, if he really wanted it to be the best product possible, he would be hiring all Wesley Snipes, right? <laughs> it doesn't just get Wesley Snipes to direct and, and be the co-star, but you get talented people everywhere. But instead, it's just uh, amateur hour all across the board. And, uh, there is a very blatant, just uh, manic ego thing going on here that's never really addressed in the movie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I need to star in this movie so everyone else should just work around me. They they have one moment. There's one scene where you're like, oh, okay, here here we go. He's about to have the meltdown, and and the movie's finally gonna run into a serious problem, which is when uh, man, is he talking to the no? It's he's talking to his dad's picture. Like he he has a photo of his dad. Uh huh. He starts talking to the photo, and you're like, okay, is he losing his mind? Is this where he turns into the Joker? <laughs> but but then that that goes away. They never. It's never addressed. Right, he he yep. has that moment, and you think, okay, this is going to blow up at some point. The pressure's gonna get to him, and he's finally he's he's been very positive and not given up through the entire movie. And then at the end, something's gonna happen that's gonna make this come to a head. But no, they just I don't even know why the scene is there if they're not gonna do anything with it. Uh, there's that, and then there's a moment where uh, Wesley Snipes directs him. The one moment where he actually gives him direction, he tells him, hey. Name drops John Cassavetes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, again, now this makes a lot more sense <laughs> if this was a real person. <laughs> but he tells him, hey, take your frustration and use it in this scene. But the scene is nothing. It's not even a big Oscar clip or anything. It's like a scene that happens right before a shootout. And uh, it's as as poorly shot, poorly performed as everything else that we've seen in, in the making of this movie. So it doesn't make a difference. Again, I... I don't understand if it was just kind of this um, desperate attempt to give Rudy Ray Moore some sort of layers. So it's not just him always saying, I'm going to do it and then doing it. Uh, but it just doesn't work. It's uh, It really feels like this just one-dimensional character that wanted to be a superstar and became a superstar. That's not an interesting story. 
Whatever you've been feeling about me, about the money man, about anybody who's ever doubted you, I want you to use it. Connect to it, man. Wesley Snipes is pretty much out the game. Uh, that's they call a rap, but when they shoot the sex scene in the movie, and it turns into just you know what we talked about earlier, amateur improv hour with uh, some props and you know the the ceiling coming down because the the sex is so righteous and earth shattering. <laughs> Eddie Murphy does call a motherfucking rap. Thought that was a nice touch, but again, shocker, no one wants it. No one wants this movie and no one really wants to do anything with it. So essentially, Rudy Ray Moore is just back to square one. He's back to where he started. But even as he calls out, he's worse off because now he's up to his prostate and debt. <laughs> and so Chris Rock shows up to be the savior in this movie. Playing Chris Rock. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I wonder if he even got paid for this. He's just like, hey, I can write it off of my taxes at the end of the year. Just let me. Or he hadn't done anything in a while, so he needed to have an acting credit so his SAG insurance didn't lapse. <laughs> this is, a, I just realized, this is a kind of a historic document, Alex, because this is pre-slap Chris Rock. It, it certainly is. He didn't have that fear in his eyes. So Chris Rock turns him on to, um, what is it, his uncle? Cousin. Cousin, who runs a theater in Indiana. Rudy goes there to check it out uh, and ends up single-handedly promoting the movie all around town. He takes him up on the offer. Uh, this is through four-wall distribution. And that is a process through which a studio or distributor rents movie theaters for a period of time and receives all the box office revenue. The four walls of a movie theater give the term its name. Companies engaging in this practice were common in the United States during the late 60s and 70s. One of them was the Utah-based Sun Classic Pictures. Put out such great films as The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams, Hangar 18... And, of course, Cujo, based on Cujo by Stephen King. Um, so he has to pay $500, and he gets, you know, that's the John Carpenter deal, man. Give me this, but I get this. Uh, so it's still a gamble, though, because he has no money. And Julio, you know, I would love that he calls, and he says, put all five reels in a box and send them to Indiana overnight, and we get a shot of him carrying the film cans. Yeah, a lot cooler if he's like, send me the flash drive. Shut up. <laughs> It would have been a lot more realistic if he put down the cans. He's like, God, this shit hurts my hands. How come they never developed a better handle for these cans, man? <laughs> How is it that, I mean, I guess we never see much of the, the actual movie being projected, but that that should be scratched to hell after, you know, because he's just taking the same print everywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that makes me curious when we watch the um, the the film Dolomite, how uh What the transfer is like? Good, yeah, how good it can be. Exactly. That's a very interesting thing I didn't think about. Maybe George Lucas got his hands on it, hey, cleaned yeah. it up, put a couple of Wookiees in the background. <laughs> Let me take a whack at it. Uh, <laughs> There's a scene where Jabba is just walking alongside Dolomite. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. I, I don't know if it was supposed to be interpreted the way I did when they, the white kids are like, well, we ran out of film. And he goes, how about all those little pieces on the floor? Like, I, I, don't, I thought I read that as like, he's just talking about like the shit they cut and like, you know, <laughs> the stuff on the cutting room floor. That's the way it was intended. That was a, a really good joke. That's, uh, that's what it plays like. But I, but because of uh, Cody Smith McPhee's response, I don't think it was supposed to be a joke. Because- oh, yeah. He explains it's something mm-hmm. else. I've heard of short ends, uh, 
God, a long time ago, but I'm sure this it's still a practice if you're shooting on film because it was uh they were saying so short ends are bits and pieces of film that isn't used when they're prepping reels that are, haven't been shot yet, and so the studios or you know the manufacturers Kodak you know will sell you those bits and pieces cheaper than they would regular film, and then you just put it together and then you you use it to so it's like you get a discount. So interesting. Knowing that completely ruined the joke. If <laughs> it was a joke, the the plight of the the film nerd. That's that's what we're dealing with right there. So the world premiere happens and sells like hotcakes, proverbial hotcakes, and it's a hit. People love it. Uh, at this point, at this point, you realize you were watching Bowfinger, but without Steve Martin. Well, at this point, Rudy Ray Moore changes his tune, and you know he thought he was making you know some big action movie, and now he changes to it's comedy and it's sexy <laughs> oh, and it's action. So you realize you're watching the Disaster Artist. I was trying very hard to avoid that because I was reading several things that compared this movie to that. How can you not compare it? I mean, it's uh, and honestly, see, I'm older than you, Alex. So I went to Ed Wood. I'm like, this is Ed Wood. Uh huh. Well, written by the same duo, Scott mm-hmm. Alexander and Larry Karazowski. Do you know how to pronounce his last name? Karazowski sounds right. Uh, but the movie's a hit. Bob Odenkirk shows up because why not? Uh, <laughs> he's from Dimension. Dimension originally passed on it. Um, but Bob Odenkirk playing Lawrence Woolner. Would you say he's putting about as much effort as he did in his uh, Little Women cameo? He at least has oh my little women. In that. <laughs> he doesn't get to say oh my Dolomite is my name in this one. <laughs> no, he does not. Sadly, uh, but he makes a deal to distribute Dolomite. This immediately puts Rudy Ray Moore back on track, uh, as Hulk Hogan would say, and he's able to pay off any debts that he has. And you know he's living life back at it. Uh, not without one last setback, though, as en route to the Hollywood premiere, more in the cast read negative reviews of the film, lowering their spirits. Upon arrival, however, the group is astonished to see an even bigger crowd of people cheering them on from outside of the theater. Uh, now, this is Vince McMahon 101 and like a philosophy that so many people have clung to and is it can be a smart marketing strategy. Um, obviously 1975, it hadn't been done to death like it is now, but what happens is, uh, Rudy reads that and just says, cool. You know, if they say all this shit in the newspaper about how vulgar and nasty it is, that's just going to make people, you know, more curious to come and see it. That's, um, that's the beginning of the end. (laughs) That's yeah. The room and a lot of movies like that. What's much funnier is when movies try to cling to being like art a la, uh, showgirls you know that acted like it was a serious movie and i i I, in in time they've leaned into the legacy it has but uh you know that thought process has to go through a lot of people's heads uh it's not the same for just a bad movie but if you make a really violent vulgar (laughs) raj our buddy roger ebert every time he couldn't help himself and he just probably made a lot of people want to you know young people want to see friday the 13th more (laughs) again as i bring up uh, quarterly here on the contrarians. If you've never seen his review of Friday the 13th part four, please seek it out. It is among the greater promos ever cut. <laughs> I was just amused by, by the fact that they were, you know, this is the seventies. There's no run tomatoes, but they're basically doing the run tomatoes roundup where they're just <laughs> <laughs> reading quotes, <laughs> taking turns. 
Craig Robinson does one, then Key Michael Key does the next one. And then uh, I think Titus might have done the other one. But it's uh it's fuck, it's what we do at the beginning of each uh part, at the beginning of the trans corner and real talk. Who the fuck is Armin White? <laughs> um so they show up and it's the end of the twenty eleven Muppets movie. They get out of the car like <laughs> conquering heroes and People are there to cheer them on. They go into the movie. There, there's going to be three showings. Man, that that poor projectionist, because they're they're adding that two a.m. on the fly. He was not scheduled to stay till four in the morning. God, and you know it was so hot up there; just had to be blistering. And so they all enter the theater, except for Rudy, as he realizes that you know the reason. He's going to be a success as those people there. So he goes out and, you know, encourages the dreams of a young man and gets on a light post and cuts a promo for the people. And they're all happy to see him. And then Life's a Happy Song plays. And, who, was, uh, uh, who was wearing the fart shoes? Greg Robinson, I would assume. <laughs> for someone so funny, he really didn't get any funny lines in this. They just The one joke was based around him being fat because he had hot sauce on his suit. Uh, <laughs> which can relate, brother. I'd... <laughs> He got to sing. They told him, look, you choose. You want to be funny or do you want to sing? And because, you can't have it both ways. No. The the funniest, the, the one line that made me laugh is uh, when before his movie's acquired, he just has a movie, but he, he can't play it. So he's broke. And then and everybody, he realizes that everybody's going to pay for their own breakfast because he's, he's done paying for everybody's food. And he calls Mike Epps. <laughs> I wrote it down. <laughs> He calls him strawberry shortcake eating motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> strawberry shortcake eating motherfucker. Hey man, I like strawberry Rudy. Come on, Rudy. He does, yeah, that part where he says, and you got a lot of fucking nerve ordering an extra side of greens with all this going on right now. That was tremendous. <laughs> but we learned, you know, kind of what came next is that Dolomite went on to be a massive success grossing money and spawning uh more tours and sequels and up until the passing of rudy ray moore in 2008 i believe they said uh he passed away yeah october 19th of 2008 in akron ohio well at the age of uh, 81 and due to his rhyming and rhythmic taunting went on to be known as the or considered the godfather of rap and then we get some archival footage of the real Dolomite, and that takes us out. And Netflix immediately is like, hey, you might watch this, too. <laughs> what did it suggest to you, Alex? Stranger Things Fucking season four? funny people. <laughs> Fucking funny people, dude. It, it went from this to saying, hey, you want to watch this Judd Apatow movie? And then, of course, it didn't even play a trailer. It went into like one of the worst scenes of the movie. I just I saw that movie once, maybe twice. And the scene it went into is like, I could feel your presence with me, Julio. And both you and I were just like, oh, my God, make it end. <laughs> Was it Eric Bana, uh, Leslie Mann, and Adam Sandler? Being no, awkward? Eric Bana is the best part of that movie. Um, it's... Uh, the part where, if for some reason, his doctor's European and Adam Sandler and Seth Rogen are just going back and forth riffing on him in the hospital room, and it just does not end. It is what you and I repeatedly rail on, uh, be it Contrarian's Corner or Real Talk about a lot of modern comedies. Ray Ray Moore would have a field day making fun of funny people. I Okay, I could relate to him with... Uh, 
front page watching funny people. <laughs> it's like this shit isn't funny. Uh, so, Alex, is this a first where we see archival footage of the person that the movie's about, and he kind of looks like the actor that was playing him? Yeah, because I think I feel like we always call it out whenever. Whenever we get one of these movies and we're like, yeah, they look nothing like the actors that were playing them. <laughs> That's one of the funniest parts of uh, Walk the Line. I mean, you could argue Joaquin Phoenix is not a classically handsome man, but he's a good looking cat, especially in that movie. And Reese is fucking Reese Witherspoon. Johnny Cash and June Carter were not like, you know, really, really hot people. And so that that's the one that obviously always comes to mind for me. And uh, oh, fuck, what did, we did pain something not long ago. I was thinking of pain and gain. Pain and gain. <laughs> yeah, that Daniel Lugo uh, <laughs> did not look like Mark Wahlberg at all. <laughs> all right. Well, we made it to the end. Netflix wins. You fed the algorithm just by watching the movie. Are you ready to... Uh, to move on to real talk, Alex. Yes, because that was particularly taxing, because I think this movie is quite good. And I'm excited to talk about the future promise of our friend <laughs> Edwin Edwin Murphy. Let's do it. Edward, excuse me. 